Welcome. Today I'm at Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio. I'm standing next to Major General Pulse Wills, who when I was active duty was my boss's 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 boss, so hopefully this goes well. But Major General Wills is in charge of over 32,000 people, 1,600 aircraft spread across 22 locations, and today he's going to tell us how we've reimagined pilot training. Thanks, Hazard. It's great to see you. It's great that you were able to come out here and, and spend the time with us, and we really appreciate it. You know, we had this great idea about three years ago, and the idea was really simple. Is the way we've always done it going to be good enough in the 21st century? And you're a fifth-gen pilot, and you know that the threats that are out there are different. And the simple fact of the matter is that our pilot training system hasn't changed in about six decades when you really get back down to it. So we started, General Steve Quast was the commander of AETC. He had a really simple charter to the team. He said, grab some great young officers and airmen. Let's uh, give them some authority, some empowerment, and let's go see if they can find a way to train pilots in half the time and make the same quality or a better pilot using advanced technology. And so Pilot Training Next was born. We've run three classes through the Pilot Training Next program. It's run by our own Detachment 24 right here at Randolph, and we use the T-6 aircraft as a trainer. Now, a lot of people think that the T-6 is just a turboprop. There's not much to think about, but as you found out, it's a pretty great little airplane. And particularly, we used an advanced version of the T-6 with better avionics and better tools. But more importantly, we took a look at adult learning models. We took a look at immersive technology, and we tried to figure out how we could best use the training time. And out of that, what we found is that, in fact, there are new ways to look at pilot training. And so Pilot Training Next, we've sent graduates to all across the Air Force, and they've done pretty well across the board. Just like every pilot training class that graduates, some of them have done better than others, but we're proud of our product. And so then the next question came along a couple of years later, which is, can you apply this lesson at scale? And so we started something about a year ago called UPT 2.5. The 2.5 is really simple. If you flew T-37s and T-38s, that was 1.0. Our current system is 2.0. And so this is 2.5 because we know it's the first step towards a really reimagined pilot training system. And 2.5 is really just trying to apply the key lessons from pilot training next. And those key lessons are really straightforward and I think that our aviators and our aspiring aviators are going to like them. The first one is the, the idea that instructor pilots are the core of our training system. You know this as an IP. The simple fact is that this command in particular rides on the backs of our instructors who are making a difference every day. So if we can have great instructors, that's the first thing. The next is this idea that our technology might, just might, in the world's greatest and most technologically advanced country, we just might be able to do better than issuing you a poster and a checklist and telling you to pretend you're flying. All around the world right now, tens of thousands of people are teaching themselves to fly using simulators and technology that they've acquired off the shelf and built at home. So the question is, could we use immersive technology like virtual reality, like advanced simulation systems? Could we turn those into military training devices? And the answer is, yeah, you bet we can. And we've been able to build these low-cost simulators for a fraction of the cost. You know, General Quast used to say that a full-motion simulator was a $26 million monument to the past. Instead, we've got immersive training devices that cost us between ten dollars and $50,000 that can do great things. The third idea was the fact that all of us learn a little bit differently. Student-centric learning, we call it, but you would know that as really just being a good instructor and tailoring your instructional methods to the student that you have, not the student that you want. Likewise, we found that our syllabus hasn't changed in about 50 years, and we think that syllabi can be a little bit more flexible to help us build a better pilot. The next idea was the idea that seamless access to content. You live in a wireless world, but you have very much a uh, wired Air Force. 
And so almost everybody has a smartphone, they have Bluetooth, everything in their home connects. But today in our training systems, virtually nothing connects. And so we think that there's a better way. And one of the ways we want to get after that is with cloud-based learning systems. We want to have on-demand, on-command content that reflects the way that people really learn and live. You probably are used to having more than one device open. Everybody we know has more than one website open, multiple apps. And so this is a really simple idea. Let's just bring our learning into the 21st century. And then the final idea we're trying to implement is the idea of human performance. We know that our technological edge is shrinking. We know that our adversaries are acquiring better and better stuff. And we know that the future fight is going to be won like it always is by our warriors. And what happens between their ears, the way that they think, the way that they plan, the way that they can react and drive the fight is going to be fundamental. And so as we roll all of this into our new training system, that's what UPT 2.5 is all about. So if you had to summarize UPT Next, what would you say? What I would say is that Pilot Training Next was the spark. You know, it was the shot heard around the world. Maybe you'd call it the original Starbucks store. And now that Pilot Training Next innovation engine is spinning out great ideas that we're using to implement at scale. And that first scaling effort is called UPT 2.5. It's gonna build a better, more competent pilot. But we're also looking at things like, hey, if I could train a, a pilot using only the T6, why couldn't I use it, just use the T1? And in fact, we've graduated a class, we call it the Accelerated Path to Wings, where students flew only the T1 aircraft. We're looking at the possibility of teaching sims remotely. One of the biggest challenges we have is hiring sim instructors to some of our more remote locations. So why not have you teach a sim from Phoenix to uh, some of our students at uh, Del Rio, Texas or Enid, Oklahoma. We're looking at the idea of hiring qualified civilians and bringing them in, assessing them, assessing their skills and potentially bypassing some of our undergraduate pilot training because the fact of the matter is many of your listeners out there are well-trained pilots and there might be some of them that want to serve. And we're looking at how do we pair up with aviation universities to train pilots on Air Force ROTC scholarships so that on day one in the Air Force, they've already been trained in certain ways and we can take great advantage of that. And what are some of the non-traditional ways that you are increasing the performance of pilots? Well, so uh, in the old days, we, uh, we had this theory, for example, that you, know, you could teach a monkey to fly if you gave them enough bananas. We had this, this fear that somehow, if I let you study a little bit extra and you got to pilot training two or three days before me and I gave you your materials, that you'd have an unfair advantage over me somehow. We're trying to look past that and say, hey, why don't we look at the time we have during pilot training and give you access to tools and help you learn as much while you're here. Now, we're still gonna uphold the standard. There's still gonna be tests, there's still standards. But we're looking at getting people into simulators more often. We're looking at human performance. You know, we've been talking for years. AFSOC's had the preservation of the force and family. Uh, ACC has optimizing the human weapon system. Why not start from the very beginning and give people the tools to build themselves stronger physically and mentally to be ready for that future fight? Wouldn't it be great if you get to pilot training instead of me handing you a, a poster and a checklist? What if I give you a Pelican case and inside that there's a VR headset, a stick and throttles and rudder pedals and a computer, and you take that home and you have your own miniature simulator to work with every day? And what if that connects to the cloud? You asked me why VR, Hazard, and the, and the answer is really simple. Do you want to make the most out of every flight hour you have or not? Do you want to step to the flight line on day one prepared to fly the airplane, or do you want to spend a whole bunch of sorties watching somebody else show you so you can do? And since we've adopted VR in these programs, the students go out there, and on day one, they're flying the airplane, and they're doing, not watching. And we've got a long way to go yet, but VR is, is not the future, but it's an integral part of the future, and it's about making a better pilot. I mean, those things aren't radical in the 21st century, 
But for our Air Force, it's a really big step. Have you had a chance to take a look at the sports psychology, the craft side, yeah. and how they're trying to optimize the, the human weapon system and, and brain? Absolutely. Our craft, our comprehensive readiness for aircrew flying training is a really uh, big step forward. It's this basic idea that why wait until you're broken and try to fix you? And instead, from the very beginning, let's assess your, your performance as a human. Let's give you the tools to get stronger physically. Let's give you the tools to get stronger mentally. Let's use a coach-athlete relationship. One of the things that people hate in military training is being lectured and talked down to. Well, why don't we teach you, why don't we treat our, our pilots like the you know, professional athletes uh, that they're gonna be? You know very well that we're sending you out to an environment where you're gonna pull nine Gs, you're gonna go twice the speed of sound. Why don't we treat you like a professional athlete and let's provide a coach and remember, coaches have standards, and you know people get cut from athletic teams all the time. So there are some people that worry we're lowering the standards. Not the case. Let's make our humans better from day one. Yeah, we just got a chance to go there and throw tennis balls with the blinking lights. <laughs> have you had a chance to do that? How did you, you know, do? It uh, turns out I'm not as good at uh, the blinking lights and the tennis balls as I'd like to be. And so I'll, I'll attribute that to my age, but it's a great way of, of pointing out that the reality is the human mind can be trained you know, we've been uh, spending years looking into adult learning. There's all kinds of science about the way our brains work. Why not marry up that technology and that science to the world's greatest Air Force to make the best pilots? And what's been the feedback from the Air Force and the fighter training units and the mobility units? What, what's been the feedback with yeah. this new way of pilot training? What I'd say is we have had uh, a little bit of mixed feedback on that. As usually is the case, there are a lot of people who simply don't like change. And then in some cases, just getting the word out has been a challenge. So every time we have a student to graduate from one of these programs that struggles a little bit, that becomes the big story. But when we talk to folks, uh, you know, and we, and we get deeper and deeper into it, what we find is actually our graduates are doing pretty well. When people have the chance to actually see what we're doing instead of what they think we're doing, they usually walk away going, you know, it's about time we made that change. One really good example is that in our current system or in the previous system, if you got a few days ahead of the rest of the class in pilot training, what happened to you? You sat. You sat. And so the question is, why would I take a high-performing student who's a few days at the head of the program and have them sit? Why not let them continue to go? There's a myth that we're going to a self-paced program. That's not true. What we are saying is, if you can go faster, go faster. And so that's one of the examples where people say, well, it's about time we made that change. So the feedback has been a little bit mixed. Generally, once people see what we're doing and have the chance to understand it, we've gotten really positive feedback. But we have some work to do. We know, for example, you know, we're transitioning away from the T1 and we're moving into an air mobility fundamentals course. We absolutely have to get that right. And so we're pouring a lot of energy and resources into making sure that we build a world-class air mobility pilot because Air Mobility Command deserves to have a top-notch product that's gonna move our people and stuff all over the world and deliver combat capability. So mixed feedback in general, positive feedback once people really understand it. And that's why I'm really uh, happy that you came out here to learn more about it. Well, it takes a while. It takes Innovation takes a while. Anything, the F-35, even technology like cell phones. When smartphones first came out, people you know, didn't fully buy into that, and it takes some time. Is there anything that's surprised you personally from this experience? You know, I think probably what surprised me that shouldn't have is just how innovative our airmen really are. You know, the ability of the of very young airmen, and of course, I'm, I'm a little older than I used to be, and so to my mind, I'm talking about lieutenants, captains, and majors, and senior airmen. The, the things that they think of are just always amazing, and they're unbound in a lot of ways, you know, unbound by tradition. They don't necessarily understand the way we've always done it, and honestly, they don't really care. And so that's been a really pleasant surprise. 
In terms of lessons learned, I would tell you that culture is always a big deal. One of the really cool uh, aspects about doing this at 19th Air Force is that all of our people care deeply about our training system. We're all so attached to it. Change is hard. Nobody has a problem changing something that's broken. Nobody has a problem with that kind of innovation. But when you talk about innovating in an area where we know we have something that works, that can be really a, a challenge. And it's because people love it and they're proud of it. And so I might have been surprised at the depth of attachment to the current system. Yeah, I'd like to talk about innovation. So this is extremely innovative, what, what you're doing here. Pilot training has remained static for decades and decades. So what does it take to innovate and change how something is, is operating that's, that's been operating successfully for, for 50 years? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it starts with, you know, we've been very blessed. Our AATC commander, First General Gloston, and currently General Brad Webb, you know, they have trusted us that we're going to get it right. And I try to do the same thing. We've got some great folks give them a basic idea of what you want done, get them the resources to do it, and then generally we try to stay out of the way of the folks that are innovating. Uh, and I think that's the very first thing is that the, co the command has to believe in what we're doing, and you have to support it where it counts, and that's usually with resources. Because you can have the best idea in the world, but if you can't line up the dollars, the people, uh, or the things that we need, you'll, you'll fail pretty quick. So support from the top, and then I would say that it takes commitment and endurance. None of this stuff, just like you just said, the F-35 actually, you know exactly what we're talking about because everybody has an opinion about the F-35 and it turns out most people don't know very much about it. So right. you've got to have the endurance to stick with it and believe in what you're doing. So what's it been like from a leadership perspective to change this and has it been difficult from a risk perspective? Because I think a lot of people, they kind of like the status quo. That's yeah. where everything is kind of going. And when you go outside the bounds, sometimes, you know, you get, you get hammered. Yeah, that's really, that's a, a fairly accurate summary uh, of how it looks. But I will say that risk is really an interesting discussion because it's a really easy word to throw out there, but it's a little harder to quantify. So usually the question I ask is, you know, what risk are you specifically talking about? It's very easy to just say, well, that'll be too risky. So what we've really tried to do is we've tried to take a really structured look at how these different programs do a formal risk assessment on the programs to identify specifics. And usually what we found out is that we've encountered a lot of programmatic risk, but the specific operational risk has been pretty easy to mitigate so far. There's lots of questions out there. You know, does this system work? Yeah, I think the system's going to work. But the question is, would you rather have a system over the long term? Will we prefer to build more and more and more and more flying experience at the front end of the system? Those are things that we'll work our way through. But currently, I'm very satisfied with, with where we're at with respect to the, the real risk that matters, which is operational and safety risk. What's been the most challenging problem that you've had your hands on? Wow. <laughs> I would say the most challenging problem actually is to be able to explain what we're doing in a way that resonates with people. Because the fact of the matter is that this, this system, this machine, this military pilot training machine has just got all kinds of tentacles and it's, it's a lot more complex. When I was out flying fighters years and years ago, there was this tendency to think about AETC flying and it always seemed simple. And that's because when you're a student, you only see one side of it. Right. But the fact of the matter is it's an, it's an enormously complex undertaking to train the number of pilots at the quality that we do. And so I would say the biggest challenge has been to try and take all these great efforts and put them into uh, a framework that we could explain and convince people to support. And that's probably been the, the hardest part. Where do you see this going next? What I think we're going to see is... Well, I know for a fact what we're going to see is we're producing more graduates about every three weeks. We're graduating students up at Vance in UPT 2.5.
We have a pretty robust assessment mechanism. I think we talked with you a little bit about that earlier, but we're, giving, we're trying to have a very honest uh, undertaking of what the results look like so that we can, number one, strengthen the programs we have, but also the, the key component here is one of the great strengths of the Air Force is our ability to debrief honestly and speak truth. And so we're collecting the data. We want to analyze the data and make sure that we are, in fact, training to the quality standard that we want. I'm convinced that we are, and I think that that'll continue. As UPT 2.5 gains steam, we look to scale it out to Laughlin and Columbus next. Our teammates up at NGEPT are, are working on a variety of uh, innovative ideas as well that relate to UPT 2.5, although they have their own syllabus. And so I think over the next two years, you should start to see us scaling that out. And then obviously, things like helicopter training next, accelerated path to wings, remote sim instruction, we're really looking forward to fielding our first graduates and making the big technological breakthroughs on, on that stuff. When you're looking to fill talent in a specific role, especially something that's non-traditional like what we're doing here, what do you look for in that person? Well, that's a great question. The talent management aspect of this is in many ways the most important part. The simple fact of the matter is, and what I would tell the, the supervisors out there and the commanders and leaders, is you've got to be able to look beyond the, the typical stereotype. You know, We have a really good way in the Air Force of sort of making assumptions about people based on the gadgets and the doodads that they wear the patches that they have. But when you want to undertake something complex like this, you really have to take time to find out how people think and where they're motivated. And the fact of the matter is we're, we're riding a wave that was created by a bunch of really talented and energetic people. And in a lot of ways, they don't fit the classic Air Force mold. And so that's a lesson for me, you know, 30, uh, 31 years in the business. It should be a lesson for all of our commanders. You've got to look a little deeper and find the people who really have a different way of thinking at the world and have the motivation and the, and the work ethic to push it forward. And you know that they're gonna get rocks thrown at them. You know, our Pilot Training Next team, our UPT 2.5 team, their peers out in the operational world, everybody has an opinion, and you know that you're gonna take a little heat, so you've gotta find people that are really committed to, to what we're doing. Has it been difficult to kind of shield <clears throat> these people from other people coming in and, and changing what they're doing? You know, it really hasn't. I think, Again, even our harshest critics really love the Air Force for the most part, and they love the training system. So they're coming at you from a really good place. And so actually what we try to do is, for the folks that really are skeptical, we try to bring them here to Randolph. Because we're not trying to do anything except make a better pilot at the end of the day. And we're also, of course, we'd like to find innovative ways to produce more pilots because there's a worldwide pilot shortage. So it really hasn't been that hard, and it's really less about trying to shield people, and it's more about trying to get the straight story out. Once people know what you're doing, they might disagree with you a little bit about programmatic choices, but nobody's arguing with the idea that we should have a relevant training system for the 21st century. In terms of leadership, what's it like to be in charge of 32,000 people? I don't think, I'm definitely not gonna have any stars on my shoulders, so what's it like to, to not be able to shake the hand of everybody out there, but still have your leadership message go to them? Well, that's a great question. I, I would say that, you know, for one, don't sell yourself short. You never know where you're gonna end right, up. Fair enough. But, what I'd say, I don't really see myself every day as being in charge of 32,000 people. I feel like I'm lucky enough to serve, and I've got a magnificent group of people here on the staff, and then I've got phenomenal wing commanders, group commanders, and squadron commanders who are actually doing the really hard work. My life compared to the, the life of a wing commander or a squadron commander is actually pretty easy. You know, they're the ones that are right there at the, at the point where the mission is happening. They're the ones who are looking people in the eye every day. They're the ones who are translating, sometimes conflicting guidance. Let's face it, it's a complex world. So my hat's off to the squadron commanders and wing commanders and group commanders because truthfully, my, my life's pretty, uh, pretty easy. But it is a bummer that I don't get to shake all their hands, I will tell you that. Some great airmen.
Are there any lessons learned that you would tell you know, somebody in their mid-20s or even a, like a squadron commander that you think would, would help them in the future? Yeah, I think um, just like you, when I, when I was your age, I didn't see myself standing here. You know, nobody, nobody that I know that's a general officer today actually really, really wanted to be a general officer one day. What I've found over the years is what's really important is make sure you understand who you are and what you think you're doing. Because the reality is that if we wake up every day dressed like this, and, and when I look in the mirror, if what I saw was a, a manager or a pilot, you know, I would be in for a life of disappointment. There's no way to pay me. Uh, if I'm a pilot, the Air Force isn't going to pay me you know, what I can make on the outside. If I'm uh, out in industry and I'm running a company that's this size, my compensation pack package would look totally different. But the reality is the Air Force gives me something that, that no company can ever match, and that's the opportunity to work with great airmen. And we have this opportunity to teach and inspire and lead. And sometimes it doesn't feel like that. You know, it's not always like, hey, look, we're inspiring and leading. Sometimes it's just I'm trying to teach somebody how to do something hard, teach them to fly an F-35. Or maybe I've got a young airman that I'm trying to teach a particular skill. But when you have that opportunity to shape people, you know, that's, that's like magic to me. And so what I would tell young people is uh, as you move through life, just try to think really hard about who you are and what you really want to do and who you want to be. It's not about being a general. It's not about being a civilian. It's just what are those things that fire you up and give you that little extra in the morning. And if you do that, you'll be happy. Whether you stay in the Air Force or not, doing something that makes you happy and that makes a difference is, is really where it's good. Have you thought about what you want to do next? <laughs> no, this is a great crisis in my life. You know, I've been in the Air Force so long. I'm really used to getting orders every two years. It's a good system. I know what's going on. But uh, hopefully whatever I do, I'll have the opportunity to work with young people and continue to be part of our nation's defense in some way. I'm not interested in selling weapons. I don't need to do that job. Uh, but if you can get me around a bunch of lieutenant colonels or lieutenants or airmen, uh, that's probably where you'll find me. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Well, I would just say thanks. You know, and for those of you that are out there, whether you're a YouTuber who's just kind of interested in the military or whether you're a, an airline pilot that used to be in the military or you're one of my current pilots, and maybe you're a big skeptic, what I would say is continue to be skeptical. Demand a lot of your Air Force. You deserve to have the world's greatest Air Force. If you're one of our adversaries and you're watching this, what I would say is you need to be ready because America's Air Force has never been stronger and the things that we're doing are gonna make us stronger. And so, you know, God bless America, I guess is what I would say. Thanks for what you're doing and uh, Hazard, thanks especially uh, for taking the time. Well, sir, thanks for having us out here. This has been a fantastic experience. The T6B is revolutionary. I, I went into this thinking it was just gonna be a T6 with a mm -hmm. HUD and it's completely different because as we were talking about before, when I graduated T38, so I was pretty far down the pipeline, I still didn't know what made a good fighter pilot. I thought it was all yeah. just stick and rudder, how smoothly you landed. And you know that's what really surprised me when I got to the CAF is that you have to be pretty good with your hands, but then you have to be able yeah. to work the radar. You have to be able to, to do a, a SAR map if you're uh, you know, an F-35. You yeah. have to do all these other things, communicate to your team and make it happen. So I think what you guys are doing here is laying the, the groundwork yeah. for that. I appreciate it and you're right on. There's no intent to make pilot training easier. The intent is to make a better pilot. Uh, to fight and win the nation's wars. Well, sir, thanks for having us out here, and I look forward to being back. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did and you want to see the T6 footage that we shot, it's great. It's 360 6K footage. I uploaded it to YouTube, so I'll include the link in the description below. So go ahead and click on that, and then you'll be able to watch it. Other than that, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.